Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's the 17th of November, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson, and on today's show, we'll be talking to librarian Christopher Waldrup about the Google Print Program. What is it anyway, and what does it mean to you? We'll also be checking in with Moby Lives Texas correspondent Michael Schaub. He's been covering Kinky Friedman's race for governor of Texas. Apparently, the kinkster's for real. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, for those of you who have been comparing the scandal coming out of the White House over the Valerie Plame case to Watergate, the man who wrote the book on Watergate threw a monkey wrench into the case yesterday. All the President's Men co-author Bob Woodward made the shocking admission that he, too, had talked to a senior White House official about the plane case early on in the scandal. Only the official he spoke with wasn't Lewis Scooter Libby. Legal experts said the startling admission bolsters Libby's defense. So why did one of American history's most preeminent journalists withhold evidence from a federal investigation? while other reporters were being subpoenaed and, as in the case of Judith Miller of the New York Times, even going to jail? Uh, Woodward said he was working on a book at the time and he didn't want to be interrupted. Quote, The grand jury was going and reporters were being jailed and I hunkered down more than I usually do, Woodward admitted. He went on to say that he had apologized to Washington Post executive editor Leonard Downey Jr. for not coming clean earlier but he apparently made no similar apology to the American people. In response to the immediate criticism that he had acted irresponsibly and unethically, if not illegally, Woodward said of those taking shots at him, I was 29 when people who really knew how to shoot were around. Meanwhile, with the lesson of Judith Miller under constant citation, the Post's editor Downey did not say, if the paper would investigate and possibly discipline Woodward. The Post did say that Woodward had secretly testified on Monday to Special Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald. Woodward explained that his source had released him from his promise of confidentiality just to testify to Fitzgerald, but Woodward said the secret source had not released him to reveal his or her name in public. Quote, we can't tell the whole story. I would like to. It's one that will be told someday, Woodward said. He did not say if the confidentiality deal had been struck in a parking garage. Vine Deloria, who wrote one of the truly iconic books of the 1960s, Custer Died for Your Sins, has died himself. Deloria, an Oglala Sioux Indian, was a law school student at the University of Colorado at the time and the executive director of the National Congress of American Indians. 
The book was a huge controversial smash hit in which Deloria called the massacre of the 7th Cavalry on the shores of the Little Bighorn, quote, a sensitivity training session. But as Kirk Johnson points out in a New York Times obituary, Deloria went on to write 20 more books in which he, quote, steadfastly worked to demythologize how white Americans thought of American Indians. For example, in his follow-up to the Custer book, We Talk, You Listen, New Tribes, New Turf, Deloria, quote, argued that technology and corporate values were destroying American life, and he urged a return to the tribal standards of Indian culture as a window to to salvation. And in his follow-up to that book, God is Red, he took the position of deliverance through Indian ways further, arguing that American Indian spiritual traditions, far from being dated, were in fact more in tune with the needs of the modern world and Christianity. Mr. Deloria said Christianity fostered imperialism and disregard for the planet's ecology. Fine Deloria was 72. Borders, Books and Music announced its third quarter earnings, actually its third quarter losses. They were significant, and yet the company's stock went up yesterday. Borders reported that its third quarter loss was $14.1 million, as opposed to last year's third quarter loss of $1.1 million. The company blamed the losses on a 15% drop in music sales, as well as remodeling costs for many of its stores. It also said sales were way down at its outlets in Great Britain. It did say that its book sales had gone up 3%, but clearly not enough. Meanwhile, commenting on the report, Stephen Simpson in The Motley Fool says, quote, I feel a little sorry for bricks and mortar booksellers. People come in, thumb through the books, and then go home and order them on Amazon.com. Sure, a few of us will actually buy something at Borders, but once in a while, but uh, in this fool's case, it's usually a buy motivated by pity or, or guilt, and that's not a firm foundation for a growth. Simpson went on to criticize the company, saying that its so-called underperformance was, quote, self-inflicted. He was referring to the remodeling costs, and he said that only time will tell whether the money spent there will earn a compelling return on investments. Meanwhile, a book written by John Lennon when he was 12 years old is going up on the auction block. The book was his high school art book and contains drawings and prose and sketches by the Liverpool legend. Who's putting the book up for auction? None other than his teacher from Quarry Bank High School, Lancelot Burroughs. It is apparently a remarkable artifact that Burroughs kept so that he could show to future pupils at Quarry Bank High School. Now that his student has gone on to become a legend, does Sir Lancelot feel compelled to give it back to Lennon's family? Well, no. The book is expected to fetch 90,000 pounds. That's a lot of fat. And finally, it is... The awards season still. Um, In Canada, the winners of the Governor General Literary Awards, one of the country's most prestigious awards, have been announced. 
In fiction, it went to David Gilmore for his book, A Perfect Night to Go to China. Nonfiction went to John Valent for The Golden Spruce. The Poetry Award went to Anne Compton for her book, Processional. And in England, the shortlists for the Whitbread Prize have been announced. Among the nominees for the awards that are giving out in January was Nick Hornby, Salman Rushdie, Ali Smith, and Christopher Wilson for the Novel Award. The first Novel Award, a separate shortlist, included Tash Ow, Deanna Evans, Peter Hobbs, and Rachel Zadok. The Biography Awards were, uh, nominees were Nigel Farnsdale, Richard Maybe, Alexander Masters, and Hilary Sperling. And in poetry, the nominees were David Harsent, Christopher Logue, Richard Price, and Jane Yeh. The awards will be given out on January 1st. It's 5,000 pounds a winner. And uh, a couple of weeks later, on January 24th, one of those winners will be nominated, will be awarded the Book of the Year. That's 25,000 pounds. And that's a lot of fat. And that's today's news. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's November 17th, and on this day in literary history, author and historian Shelby Foote was born in 1916 in Greenville, North Carolina. Foote first appeared on the literary scene in the early 1950s with novels set in the South, among them Follow Me Down, Love in a Dry Season, and Shiloh. A longtime friend of author Walker Percy, Foote met many of the leading literati of his day, and his work gained recognition from no less than Nobel laureate William Faulkner, who cited him as a young author of promise. Foote's ability to create a realistic Civil War narrative in his novel Shiloh led his Random House editors to ask, innocently enough, that he write a short history of the war. The project was scheduled to take four years. Twenty years later, Foote had produced his massive 3,000-page, three-volume history of the Civil War. Fort Sumter to Perryville, Fredericksburg to Meridian, and Red River to Appomattox. He compared the job to swallowing a cannonball. Foote became widely known to American audiences as a historian through Ken Burns' Civil War television series. The series transformed Foote into a national celebrity, and his books returned to print and sold thousands of copies. Foote spent the last 25 years of his life working on an epic novel about Mississippi called Two Gates to the City. It remained unfinished when Foote died in Memphis this past June. Perhaps he hadn't time to finish it because of the unique way he wrote. Apparently, Foote wrote his books using a quill pen, which had to be dipped in ink every three or four words. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this day in literary history. I go by Those of you who were regular readers of Moby Lives, the blog, will probably recognize the name Christopher Waldrop. He's a librarian at 
Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and he regularly commented for the site on issues of concern to librarians and readers, such as the impact of the Patriot Act and also, more recently, of Google Print and the various incarnations of digital libraries. There was a lot of news this summer and throughout the fall about developments concerning Google Print. I called Christopher Waldrop in Nashville to ask him for the latest. I have Christopher Waldrop on the line from the library at the at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Chris, welcome to the show. Tell me something. How is Google affecting your life as a librarian? Well, it's it's been very interesting. Uh, several months ago, Google announced that they were starting this Google Print program, mm-hmm. that they would basically be working with uh, several libraries, including the uh, Oxford University Library, the uh, New York Public Library, and the University of Michigan, that they would be taking their collections and creating digital copies of the books Mm -hmm. that could then be searched through Google. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you can imagine, publishers got a little bit concerned about this. I don't have to imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the main concern was that but, you know that, that Google was going to be digitizing, at least at the University of Michigan, I, I believe, was where they were going to be digitizing their full collection, right. including copyrighted materials. Right. So I know that um, Oxford University and the New York Public Library both said, you know, we were only allowing public domain materials to be digitized, but uh, I Google... I think Michigan had said that at first, too, hadn't they, until a document slipped out showing otherwise? I don't remember hearing that. I, all I remember hearing is that uh, that Michigan essentially said from the beginning, I, I thought, so that they were going to digitize everything. Mm-hmm. We we had a, uh, a document posted at MobyLive.com that was uh, part of the agreement between Google and the university that uh, kind of tipped their hand on copyrighted material being used. But I, I seem to recall something about that. There was some concern that the uh, initially the agreement between the University of Michigan and Google was, was private, but because but that was actually I think someone found it through a Freedom of Information Act. Right. So right. Um, so wh- what does this mean practically though for other librarians? Well I I really don't know what exactly it's going to mean. Um uh, I think that uh, it's going to be a very, kind of an interesting fight. Google did, you know, at, at the request of, the, I believe, the American uh, Association of Publishers or the Association of American Publishers agreed to a six-month freeze on scanning copyrighted material, but they have, they're now going ahead with that uh, full force. And so far, it has not had, as far as I know, it has not had an effect on libraries. I think that the... Uh, the uh, Association of American Publishers and also the Authors Guild, I think that their main concern is with Google specifically. Mm-hmm. But I, I do worry, and I hope I'm not giving anyone any lawyers' ideas here, but I do worry that uh, these associations may may go after the libraries mm-hmm. themselves because the libraries are providing the books. Right. And so that's, that's why, a, why do you suspect that uh, the University of Michigan Library at least went along with this? Why didn't that fear occur to them? I, I don't know, and I, and I think it may be because they, they felt that, that this was really the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, I'm putting words in their mouth here, but maybe they felt that this really was, you know, that this is the future of libraries, mm-hmm. and they want to be on the forefront, mm-hmm. which in, a, in its own way is, is admirable, but I think 
and, and a lot of people have said one of the issues surrounding the copyright concern is that, for instance, you can have a book from the 70s or 80s that's been out of print for a very long time. It can be difficult to get, but technically it's still under copyright. Of course, right. And, and some people have, have used that as an argument for saying, you know, well, the whole copyright structure needs to be just, the whole copyright system needs to be thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a little bit too extreme. I, mm-hmm. I, I understand that there may be, you know, as, as we move into the digital world, there needs to be some flexibility and, and some sort of you know, rewriting of the terms, but I don't think that copyright needs to be completely thrown out. Well, uh, Christopher, I know that as a publisher, I often have trouble simply finding out if a work is still under copyright or not. Can you nutshell it for our listeners? How long does a copyright exist? How do you know if a book is still copyrighted? I'm really, I don't know. That's really more of a legal question, but I believe that I thought that it was... It was the life of the author plus 50 years, mm-hmm. and then there was the, uh, what was it, the Sonny Bono Copyright Extension right. Act that right. added another, I think, another 20 or 25 years onto right. that. Right, That was basically designed to protect Mickey Mouse. Right. But then, of course, there are also differences in Europe for uh, European copyrights are of a different term. Right. And, and uh, Canadian copyrights are also, I think, Canadian copyrights are still life of the author plus only 50 years. Mm-hmm. Well, so we see another level of confusion to the question, just is, is a book copyrighted or not? And I wonder how Google is pursu- pursuing checking that out on tens of thousands of books that they are proposing to, to scan. Well, as, as I understand it, they're basically asking the publishers to come forward and say, we do not want our books scanned. Right. And that seems to put a lot of undue stress on the publishers, I know that Roman and Littlefield has basically withdrawn, has been the first publisher to opt out of the system. Mm-hmm. But I also read, I believe it was in Library Journal, uh, the author Jacob Neusner, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm-hmm. he's a theologian, mm-hmm. You know, he contacted Google and was basically told to provide proof of copyright on you know, 900 or so books that he's either written or edited right. or, or you know, contributed to, right. which... Is just you know is an, seems like an amazingly difficult task for for just an author yes to provide that kind of proof well um, so in other words Google's making it as difficult as they can for people to protect their their copyright it certainly sounds that way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what does this mean for for the future say of your library are they watching this very closely are they considering how they're going to digitize their their holdings, or, or what does this mean to you? We're, we're watching it, and, and I don't know if we're even beginning to consider how, how Vanderbilt would digitize its holdings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vanderbilt is participating in a, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting to me, uh, uh, Salon.com had an article about this Google Print program, and mm-hmm. I've seen other places. People talk about the Google, Google Print program as though it's the only game in town. And there are actually several different initiatives to to create digital archives, such as uh, such as well, Vanderbilt is participating in one called Locks L O C K S S for lots of copies keeps stuff safe. <laughs> <laughs> and Vanderbilt is one of about fifty libraries, and and basically it's it's you know libraries are going out and are cooperating with publishers and uh-huh. are basically trying to find make an alliances with publishers uh-huh. this is primarily for uh, 
periodicals, scholarly periodicals, to basically create digital archives of those. What's the key issue of concern with having, um, not just by Google, but by anyone, with having a copyrighted work made available digitally? I think the main concern is the fact that, you, that, that it's available free of charge. It can be copied by anyone, anywhere. And I think that's a double-edged sword. I think, I think there, there are good aspects to that, and I think there are bad aspects to that. I think that, that authors you know, and publishers potentially lose revenue, mm-hmm. which is one of the bad things about it. On the other hand, you know, going back to you know, the books that are older, that are out of print, it's, it's, it would be good if, if people could have access to those things, mm-hmm. if they could, you know. Well, isn't, isn't there technology that would allow for uh, the protection of, of a digitally uh, uh, remade book so that you can't just make X number of copies of it or read it unless you have uh, uh, paid the appropriate uh, owner? I think there is. Uh, for a lot of, uh, for some books and even for a lot of, or actually especially for a lot of scholarly periodicals, mm-hmm. you know, you, libraries especially pay a service fee mm-hmm. to uh, have access to uh, a particular journal title but as far as a limit on the number of copies that can be made, I, I don't know if there's any, you know, even for scholarly journals, I don't know if there's a limit on the number of, if someone wanted to go in and either print or save a, a copy of, that, of a particular article, I don't know that there's any uh, sort of restriction, I don't know that there's any technology that would prevent them from mm-hmm. copying it and passing it around to everyone if they wanted to. How has uh, how has Google responded to uh, to criticisms and to concerns about uh, about the use of copyrighted material? Have they said, for example, that they can protect it from being illegally copied, or what? What do they say exactly? I, you know, it seems to be that they it seems that they have not responded at all. It seems mm-hmm. to be that they're just they're really being very dismissive of these concerns, mm-hmm. and uh, Fred. I don't have his name handy, but the the president of the American Library Association, who I I thought was initially very excited about this, has has said that Google is made a very strong statement about Google violating the law mm-hmm. and you know violating you know legal copyright protections. And and again, whatever you think, whether you think copyright is is good or not, it's it is still the law. And and if Google is breaking the law, I think they need to. I do think they need to be held accountable for that. Mm-hmm. Who exactly would hold them accountable? I mean, is this a federal crime, or what are we talking about here? Possibly the publishers mm-hmm. and authors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that maybe libraries need to take some responsibility too, mm-hmm. because there's a there's a danger that libraries could be held accountable. Right. For this. As you mentioned, what what can libraries do? I mean, uh, has there been resistance? It seems that Google had no problem finding uh, five very major libraries to participate in Google Print. Right, and I, but again, you know, most of those libraries did say that they would only uh, put uh, public domain works online. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I I don't know if libraries are willing to resist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that they may not be. Or on the other hand, if if things start to look bad for Google, libraries might start saying that this isn't such a good deal to be part of at all. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there are other reasons. I think you can go in. Now in Google Print, and it's you know it's it's not like a it's not like searching your library catalog. It's mm-hmm. very difficult to find 
a specific book if that's what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And according to their uh, their frequently asked questions page, you can get uh, you can you can either go to a, you know there's a buy this book link, or they say that there's a find this book in a library link, but I haven't been able to find that link. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound like Google, the master of the simple interface. <laughs> no. Um, but maybe they're just uh, protecting themselves somewhat. That, that could be. Well, um, what's the next development to watch for as far as Google Print is concerned? Have they got any major uh, uh, releases coming up of, of, of first installments in, in their library? Or, or what, what, can, uh, what can we look for next? Well, uh, right now the main thing you can look for, I know that they've put uh, works of Henry James online and Civil War manuscripts. Um, I, I don't know what, to, what would be the next thing to look for. I think the next thing to look for might be more major litigation, mm-hmm. um, or at the very least, some nego- some you know greater negotiation between Google and and large publishing houses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I, you can you um, can you nutshell why in closing why this may be of concern to the average reader? I think because it's I, I don't know about the average reader, but I can certainly speak to. Um, people who are doing scholarly research, mm-hmm. and that is that the, this Google Print program is not all it's cracked up to be. It's, it, it does not necessarily, even if, even if the book is online, it does not necessarily give you the kind of specific targeted search results that you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I, I did a search for uh, the plays the thing as a phrase, mm-hmm. and I got within my top ten search results, I got I got the uh, a book about Mae West and also okay. the Complete Idiot's Guide to Bringing Up Baby. Uh-huh. And the text of Hamlet was number 12 on the list. So uh-huh. it's a very general sort of search. So, so number one complaint is it's just not the best way to do your research. Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, the Salon.com article mentioned, said, you know, imagine if you're a, a researcher and there's a book in the library that you know nothing about that's about a subject that you don't know about, but that has all the answers that you want. And I'd like to know what researcher you know, goes into something, goes in, into research that blindly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think it ever happens that there's this mythical book out there that you don't know about that's not reachable any other way but by a simple keyword search Right. that will... You know that, that has all the answers that you're looking for. Right. So, I think that's the number one complaint, and and basically, again, it comes down to Google is is plowing ahead with this project. They're not they're not waiting for the law. They're not waiting for really you know to give people a chance to catch up with what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are a lot of issues that that need at the very least clarification before they go full stream ahead with this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Christopher Waldrop, librarian for Vanderbilt University, thanks very much for coming on Moby Lives. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
Michael Schaub's previous claim to fame has been as the co-blogger with Jessica Crispin on Bookslut.com, one of the country's most popular book blogs. Now Schaub can add something equally notorious to his resume. He's the new Texas correspondent for Moby Lives Radio. I reached him in Austin to ask him about the campaign for governor of retired rock star and supposedly retired best-selling mystery writer Kinky Friedman. I have Michael Schaub online. Michael, many people may know you from bookslut.com, but you're also um, a journalist in Austin, Texas, and one of your most recent interviews has been with Kinky Friedman in an interview you're going to have up on bookslut.com, uh, what, next month, I think? Next month, right. Um, you, you talked to the kinkster about his campaign for governor of Texas. To fill in any who don't know, uh, Kinky Friedman started out as a musician in the late 60s and throughout the 70s. He performed with his band Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys, and then he went on to write mysteries, um, kind of wacky, funny mysteries such as Armadillos and Old Lace. Now he's running for governor of Texas. Uh, and, and Michael Schaub, is he serious? He is serious. Uh, it's it's not a Norman Mailer kind of novelty campaign. Mm-hmm. He really uh, he's hired a political consultant, a political consultant that helped Jesse Ventura win in Minnesota. And uh, you know he's producing campaign commercials. He's uh, you know he's very serious about it. One of the uh, latest polls to come out had him at 21 percent against uh, Rick Perry, who's the Republican incumbent, and Chris Bell, who's the presumptive Democratic nominee, is a former U.S. congressman. So he's serious. He, uh, he's taking this very seriously. He's, he's sort of dedicating all his time and energy to it right now. And, and is he running as an independent, or what's his party affiliation? He's running as an independent, and he's running in Texas, which is it's very difficult to run as an independent there. It's a, uh, you have to gather uh, thousands of, of, you have one month to gather thousands of signatures from people who have not voted in either primary, either Democratic or Republican primaries. So his campaign right now is in the stages of, of trying to, to get this lined up and get as many signatures uh, as they can in that one month after the primaries. But uh, he's running as an independent. He's uh, attacking the Democrats and the Republicans equally. Uh, Republicans, of course, being in power in, in Texas, maybe a little more so, but uh, you know, he, he's criticized the Ann Richards administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so he's, he's sort of a equal opportunity uh, mm-hmm. attack dog. Well, how how would you categorize him? I mean, uh, uh, former rock musician is is he is he is he a lefty? It's hard to say. He, he is left on on some issues. He played a a few years ago. He played at a benefit for the Texas Observer, which is a very uh, liberal Texas publication. And uh, at the same time, in an interview after that, he said, "You know, these are nice people at the Texas Observer, but." You know, I'm I'm sick of America being a paper tiger. You know, this was after 9/11. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, a, you know, he's, a, I, I think liberal on a lot of social issues. He's pro-gay marriage. He's mm-hmm. pro-choice. He wrote in the 70s. He wrote what he calls the only pro-choice country music song ever written, <laughs> "Rapid City, South Dakota." Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, certainly on those issues, he he uh, he's a little more conservative on uh, uh, things like terrorism. Uh, of course, since he's running for governor of Texas, it uh, might not come up. So yeah, yeah. Well, well. What is he like in person? I mean, um, how how intense is he on this campaign? What's what kind of candidate is he? He's a, a, 
I think he's a candidate who works best one on one. And when you see him talking with uh, with people at the rallies that he, he goes to or the the book signings, uh, you know, he he just has a very entrancing personality and a, a he's really able to connect to people. I think mm-hmm. best on that one on one level. Mm-hmm. But he's a great public speaker. You know, he used to you know be a performing musician in the seventies and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he knows how to work a crowd. He knows yeah. how to tell jokes. Yeah. Well, if there was, uh, or will there be a debate? A debate with the uh, the Republican, the Democratic, and the Kinky? I think there has to be. Although I, I, I think the Republicans and the Democrats are going to go on saying that they don't think Kinky's serious. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't see how they can't. And uh, it would, it would be better than most uh, Texas political debates, which are uh, usually so boring that I think several people actually killed themselves during them. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, having a guy actually named Kinky in the debate is a step up. Um, that would be great. And, and when, you, when, when, uh, when, you, when you get a Kinky Friedman campaign button, does it say Kinky on it? Does he, does he have a real first name? Uh, yeah, his, his real first name is Richard, but he, uh, it's, uh, I think he's going to be on the, on the ballot if he makes it as Richard Kinky Friedman. Mm-hmm. But uh, the bumper stickers and the buttons, uh, so he, has, he has several of them. Uh, a lot of them say... Uh, my governor is a Jewish songwriter or something like that. <laughs> you know, uh, why the hell not, which is his campaign motto. His campaign motto is why the hell not? Why the hell not, yes. Apparently <laughs> when, when he told uh, Molly Ivins, the columnist, that he was thinking about running for governor, she shrugged and said, well, why the hell not? All right. So he, Makes sense. Yeah, so, so he adopted that as his slogan. So uh, is she one of his advocates? Does he have any prominent uh, figures giving him endorsements so far? Well, he has, he has probably the most significant endorsement in Texas, or at least in Austin, my part of Texas, which is Willie Nelson, uh-huh. uh, which other than that, uh-huh. probably, probably one, uh, significant, but... Uh, Willie still has some clout, or, or not? Oh, yeah, yeah, Willie's uh, he's the patron saint of Texas, he's a, I, I think everyone loves him, even even the Republicans here love the guy, so, uh, they almost named a highway uh, after him here, uh, but some folks in the legislature didn't like that idea because of the whole hot thing so i see yeah they decided not to take the high road <laughs> that's good thank you very much well so um what is a kinky campaign appearance like i mean we should also point out he's running way early um is, is he is he in full bore yet is he is he doing campaign appearances he's doing uh, some targeted campaign appearances at a a lot of uh, humane societies and, and animal shelters he's one of the things he's known for in Texas is he runs the uh, Utopia Animal Rescue Ranch in the Hill Country of Texas, mm-hmm. uh, not far from Austin. Uh, and so he's he's only been an advocate of animal rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he once said that if he were elected governor, he would try to outlaw uh, the declawing of cats. So uh, you know he's, he's, <laughs> he's got <laughs> some key winning <laughs> issues. I can tell. Yeah, I think so. I <laughs> it's going to be like the flag burning of 2006, I think. But uh, you know. <laughs> It's uh, it, you know, so it's it's kind of smaller targeted uh, appearances, mm-hmm. you know, mixed with some uh, audio book autographing sessions right now. I think uh, it'll probably go into full bore later on. I don't, I don't know if he's ever going to start singing. Uh, he hasn't performed in a long time. But, yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, Michael here in, in my neck of the woods, everybody runs on their own money. We've got um, uh, Mike Bloomberg just won the. Uh, his second term as mayor of New York, uh, spending uh, more than, than the president spent, I think. 
Uh, we've got John Corzine, uh, now the governor of New Jersey, who spent more than um, than anybody's spent in, in, in New Jersey history. Is Kinky running on his own uh, probably considerable fortune, or is he raising money? He's, uh, I've, I'm not sure. I think he's running mostly on his, his own money, but he's a, or at least I, I assume he is. I know he is taking contributions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although he's not taking contributions, I think, from PACs, only from mm-hmm. individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did, a, I think it was a few months ago, it was before Katrina, he had won $50,000 at a Harris Casino in uh, New Orleans and said that he was going to use that as, as uh, some of the campaign money. So there's always that. So he's a gambler. He's a gambler, yeah. And he, in fact, he said that uh, on on election night, he'll be watching the election results from Las Vegas. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know. I don't know if that denotes a certain confidence or, uh, <laughs> or, or the opposite. Um, yeah, one of the two. Well, so when you spoke to him, uh, did you get a chance to talk to him about art? I mean, he's an artist, a musician, a writer. Is, is he still making it? Does he still want to talk about it? I'm not sure he wants to talk about it as much. He seemed a little reluctant. He's, And if you read other interviews with him, he's uh, in his last book, he had uh, sort of killed off the main character in his mystery series, who was Kinky Friedman. And said that he was, you know, not going to write any more mystery novels. So he actually and, uh, killed the the character died. The character died, and uh, you know, I wouldn't, you know, he could always pull like a uh, a, a comeback, you know, that kind of thing. Sherlock it's, Holmes came back from the dead. Exactly right. So it, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's, it's it's really the final one. He seems to think it is, but he also kind of left it. When I asked him about it, he sort of left the door open, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of said anything's possible. Um, as far as music goes, I, uh, I, he, I don't think he's written a country song in a long time. He uh-huh. uh, sort of gave that up in, towards the end of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think he needs a campaign song, though. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, uh, I'm not sure. I assume it would be like one of Willie Nelson's, but he has a lot of, of his own. I'm sure he could pull from. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's got to write a new one called Why the Hell Not. I think so. Yeah, his one of his big campaign... Uh, deals is to get rid of the state song of Texas, which is a really horrible song called Texas or Texas. Uh-huh. And uh, he wants to replace it. Uh, I think he said his first choice would be suicide. Painless. So, <laughs> <laughs> which would be better. I don't know, I Michael. I just think this guy's going to win in a landslide. I, I can't say why. Oh, I don't see how, how he couldn't. <laughs> uh, they could at least elect him uh, governor of Austin, I, I assume. Well, what's your best get at, uh, guess at this uh, at this distant remove? He's running. Uh, the election will be in 2006, November 2006. It's a it's it's a year off yet. But um, do you sense any any uh, anything at all about whether he has a real chance? I think you know after Jesse Ventura, I, I'd be kind of reluctant to say he he doesn't have a chance because I think he has to get 40 percent. Uh, in a plurality in Texas, mm-hmm. you know, so I think it is. It, I, I think it is possible, but I think the odds are, are very much against him. You know, whoever the Republicans have to choose between Rick Perry, the incumbent governor, and Carol Keaton Strayhorn, who's the state controller, mm-hmm. and they're both fairly popular in Texas. Uh, the Democrats are going to nominate their usual sacrificial lamb. So, it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think it's a, you know he could be a spoiler. He could, uh, you know, help elect a Democrat. He could help re-elect Perry, it's really hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's serious, and I, I think there's a, is at least a mathematical chance that he could be elected. 
Well, we will have to check back in with you as the campaign progresses. Now that you're going to be the Moby Lives Texas correspondent, um, but thanks for your first report. Thank you. And that's our show for today, the 17th of November, 2005. Thanks to our guests, Christopher Waldrop from Vanderbilt University's Library in Nashville, Tennessee. And, of course, to Moby Lives Texas correspondent, Michael Schaub, reporting from Austin. Gracias as well to our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, and to everyone here at Melville House, Becky Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and my co-publisher and pal, Valerie Marians. We'll be back tomorrow, and in the meantime, remember, that whale is out there, man. Jagged sky. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in. I pushed my soul in a deep dark hole and then I followed it in. I watched myself crawling out as I was crawling in. I got up so tight I couldn't unwind. I saw so much I broke my mind. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in.